0: And welcome to the Overboard Show. We are live today with the rock star of conservation, the paparazzi of sustainability, Dr. Andy Lewis. And we are honored with Naomi, who is the Queen of Melanesia, also known as. <laughs> Thank you both so much. Andy, it's been far too long. It seems like years since we've had you on the show.
1: It has been, Dave. It's been a long time. Uh, hi to all the, the listeners out there in uh, Super Yacht Radio land. It's been a long time. and um, But look, there's been a, an amazing amount of uh, good stuff happening at the Foundation, so lots to talk about. Um, we've been busy. We've been in the water. We've been doing research. We've been uh, developing the Foundation. Uh, we've been speaking in public traveling around the country so uh, it's uh, it's all it's all systems go here I,
0: I have to say um, <clears throat> we did uh, f- when it was at Singapore um, yes we were talking to some ladies from I'm not sure if I should say who they were but let's say they were somehow attached to the super, yachts, uh, um, super yacht uh, guide and um, that's what right. They were so excited. I I was speaking with them and they were like, Guess who's in our hotel? Guess who's in our hotel? I "I don't know, uh, Bono, Um, uh, the the Rolling Stones, Uh, who's in your hotel? Dr. Andy Lewis is in our hotel. I was like, Okay.
1: And it it wasn't even the most expensive hotel in Cairns either. Oh, we've got... But I don't think they were staying... Look, it's good when your reputation precedes you in a good way, as you know, Dave. I'm sure you've had experience with that.
0: Yes, but it's, it might be good for you. But for my reputation precedes me, it's usually a negative.
1: Well, you know, let's see if we can change that for you.
0: <laughs> so we also have... Na- Who's Naomi now? Tell me about your, your guest with us today. The beautiful Naomi Okay, Naomi from-
1: is... Yeah, Naomi Naomi Longa. She's a Papua New Guinean woman from Kimbe in um, on New Britain, uh, one of the beautiful islands in Papua New Guinea, right on the border of the Bismarck Sea. She's been working with us now for over a year, and she's she's essentially the director uh, and the leader of our Sea Women in Melanesia program. So she's down here in Australia doing marine science training, and the Coral Sea Foundation is funding her. To go right through to the end of her dive instructor training. So and that that will make her the first indigenous female scuba diving instructor from Papua New Guinea. And basically what we're doing is giving Naomi the skills that she needs to to run the whole Sea Women of Melanesia program, which is which is really aimed at training the indigenous women of PNG, especially from the islands and the, the saltwater country, giving those women the skills that they need to take a lead role in creating marine reserves in the, the beautiful coral reef areas of PNG. So um, Naomi's uh, doing a fantastic job. I'll um, I'll let her tell you a bit more about herself and where she's from, over to you, Naomi. Hello, hi, Naomi. Hi,
2: everyone, I'm Naomi. Yeah, hi, um, I'm from Kimbe, a small town in Western Britain province in Papua New Guinea. And I am so happy to be here to do the instructor course and to go back and train the other woman, basic scuba diving and um, conservation work, doing some conservation work in PNG.
0: Tell me, Naomi, what's the biggest threat to the the coral reef area in PNG?
2: Uh, Well, as... um, as we all are experiencing today, population is um, increasing, so there's more pressure on the coral reef, and also people are still using um, dynamite fishing and other uh-huh. illegal fishing. Yeah.
0: Okay, so because um, that's that's something I haven't heard of from a long time. So they're using dynamite to do their fishing, which uh, I presume is illegal.
2: Yeah. yeah. And And also the blitzing event is affecting the coral reefs so
0: well yeah, I mean if you we are
2: trying to help save the coral reefs yeah
0: and, and how how do you how do you go about stopping people using dynamite to do fishing? Is that through education or what what's what's the method?
1: go ahead. So,
0: can you hear me okay?
1: She's, yeah, no, she's just composing her answer.
2: Yeah, um, we have a, a conservation uh, center in West New Britain, where I'm from, mm-hmm. and they're doing awareness and, um, yeah, awareness around the community, but, yeah, people are still um, using it to catch fish, because I think it's the fastest way to collect fish. So, yeah, they're still practicing those.
0: Oh, um, and you're training, yeah. you're training with the Foundation. Uh, You're being trained in scuba diving, uh, obviously to a level where you can train other people.
2: Yeah. So, um, I just completed my dive master, but as a dive master, I I cannot certify people, uh, Mm. basic scuba diving. So, I need to do my instructor course so that I can be able to certify the woman, local woman, and then they can be able to uh, do scuba diving and... Um, do surveys and set up marine reserves in their own local community.
0: And I believe Paddy has uh, partnered with you to help in this training. Is that right?
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, yeah, that's right, Paddy. Um, we've had great support um, from the regional uh, centre, Paddy Australia. So Hans Ulrich, uh and his team have come on board with, with our, our partners at the Conflict Island Conservation Initiative uh, and they have a Paddy training facility out there, and they have had for quite a few years. So, um, look, we're very grateful for the support of Paddy and, and a whole range of other partners. I mean, really, um, this next training event, which is coming up uh, at the end of the month, is is really shaping up to be to be fantastic. We've we've got funding from Carnival Cruise Line, we've got funding from Paddy, uh, from our partners at the Bambuda Group in Sydney and their links to the Sea Life Trust and to Cisco. Uh, we've, we've got funding from a whole range of our um, members and supporters. Um, the Jock Clough Marine Foundation in Western Australia um, has supported us recently. Uh, a lot of our um, other supporters in Western Australia have also chipped in. So there's it's, it's a great team effort, and mm-hmm. we've, we've got enough funding now to put another 10 women uh, through this training program, and they'll all be local women from the the fantastic Louisiana Archipelago of the Milne Bay Province, um, and look, I mean, I can't stress enough. This is, in terms of a super yacht cruising destination, this is, you know, one of the most incredible uh, destinations in the world. It's remote, uh, but it's it's starting to now come onto the radar of uh, of cruising super yachts, uh, and you know, the critical the critical thing we need to be doing in this place for the local people and for the super yacht community is to preserving these reefs so that the fishery is intact for the local people to provide them food and that the the incredible dive sites that people travel thousands of kilometers to see that they're still in good condition so i mean those yeah. are the those are the levers that we're trying to to pull and engage and make sure that these things happen but for it to happen we have to engage the local people i mean this is how on the pragmatic side this is how marine conservation well, has to happen I, in I, melanesia I
0: I presume um, sorry, I presume to to stop uh, people dynamiting you have to give them an alternative way of catching the fish.
1: Yeah well good? look it's not so much it's not so much dynamite fishing I mean in these areas, dynamite fishing still happens in some places close to the, the bigger towns mm-hmm. like Kimbe where where Naomi's from I mean Kimbe's one of the bigger towns on New Britain. Um but I mean out in the area where we're going to be working out in the remote part of the Louisiades uh, people are by and large still living a subsistence lifestyle. I mean, there's there's no electricity out there. There's no fuel. Um, there's you know there's not a lot of great. You you can't get dynamite out there. Um, but there's an increasing number of people fishing. If they can catch fish or turtles and sell them, they will. So the critical thing that has to happen is you you need to firstly um, pass across that knowledge that lets the people in the wider community know that there's an advantage to having a marine protected area. I mean, the science on that is very clear now where some of the members of our team have been involved with some of the critical research on the Great Barrier Reef, which has conclusively demonstrated that the, that the green zones, the marine zir- reserves, uh, that they work, um, you know, and, and so we can, we can go to people and very confidently say, look, if you set aside 30% of your reef area, you'll catch more fish out of the remaining 70%, than you will if you just continue to fish the whole thing down. I mean that that's very clear. So, firstly, getting that message across is important. The second thing is then uh, supporting the community in their efforts to you know to reach a consensus and encourage everyone to modify their fishing pressure. And so we're doing that in a number of ways. Obviously, having advocates within the community and the support of the community leadership is very important. Uh, and our our trained women. Um, are very good at going in and, and taking that lead role, telling everybody about the benefits of the reserves and actually doing the surveying and the sampling um, themselves. And, you know, that makes, them, that makes them a very sort of iconic person in the community and, and lends weight to their, to their uh, extortions, I guess, to the, to the people to modify their fishing pressure. And then the final thing we do, obviously, you know, you can go into an area, you convince the people to set up a marine reserve. They can say, yes, yes, we'll set up a reserve. But you know reserves take a number of years to work, and so that means ongoing support for these communities. And the key things that we support them with, and the key things that they need, are clean access to clean water, access to medical aid, and educational materials for their children in the small schools in the village. So that's the that's the sort of the ho- the overall package of how we're trying to engage the people out there and and get action on on getting these reserves in place. So. This upcoming training program uh is going to be really important it's it's going to be two weeks we're going to have representatives from um from a whole lot of different islands we're also going to have um a whole suite of marine scientists there to help train the women uh as we said we've got support from paddy to help them to to help fund the diving uh we're looking at generating support to make sure that the women have a, a gps package a camera um, the uh, the appropriate uh, snorkeling equipment and safety equipment to be able to go and do their surveys uh, and then backing that up with things like water tanks and medical aid packages and, and, uh, and packages of school books and things like that for the villagers. So um, it's an ongoing program, but it's really starting to snowball, Dave. So it's, it's great to see that happening. And we're now getting interest in rolling out a similar thing at four or five other locations around... Melanesia, which is which is really that 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 was our overall objective to really cast a, a net of these marine reserves right across this very important part of the eastern coral triangle. So it's 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 really exciting. It's an exciting times to see it all starting to come together.
3: Um, hi, Andy and Naomi. I've been listening in, and um, okay. I, I think in one of the biggest things with what you're saying is there is the protection of course and of the marine reserves but encompassing in that is also the protection as you were saying of the cultures and the um, livelihood of the people of those areas as well and the empowering of these women um, we've talked previously about this but the um, huge benefit of empowering these women and how it has a a knock on effect for the whole community um, I think is just one of the most beautiful symbiosis between the two in order to protect the reefs um you're also helping protect the livelihoods and and the culture as well of this area
1: yeah look and and, and the culture the cultural aspect is the thing that most people don't appreciate and i mean until you've been to new guinea and or into Melanesia generally and appreciated the cultural diversity. I mean, New Guinea, in New Guinea, there's over 800 different languages spoken. Um, and, you know, there can be huge differences in language just from one island to the next. And so when you're going into an area and trying to convince people to to engage in a, in a relatively new practice, which is putting aside an area of reef in a reserve, uh, to do that, it's in, it, the critical thing is to understand the cultural aspect of that particular group of people in that area. How do they interact with the sea country? What were their traditional rules about when and where fishing could take place? Um, and all of those sorts of, those critical bits of information about the culture, those bits of information are best obtained Mm -hmm. by having women um, go into the communities and and engage with other women and do the talking because that's how traditionally it it used to happen. So, um, you know, there's there's multiple reasons why empowering these women and training these women is super important into getting this critical cultural information that we then need to go in uh, and, and set up the reserves in a culturally appropriate way. I mean, this is the, 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 the important thing is we're not going in there telling people what to do. We're coming in there and offering our support service and saying, uh, this is what the science is saying. If your community would like to engage in this process, then we're here to help you. We're here to help you with uh, explaining the science. We're here to help you with doing the surveys. We're here to help you in whatever way we can to to get the community to uh, avoid fishing in these areas. But the, the critical cultural knowledge is best obtained by the women and and so the women of melanesia are a very very important and a very very underused resource at the moment and yet i mean as naomi pointed out at our event in perth last week uh, the bulk of the graduates in the biology and marine biology programs and the environmental management programs from the universities and the institutions in melanesia the bulk of those graduates are women at the moment so there's this there's this huge resource of quite highly trained women that have got backgrounds in biology that are very, very keen to get engaged with conservation work Uh, and we're trying to make sure that those opportunities for them to get engaged uh, are present because, you know, we we really feel it's one of the key, it's one of the key um, methods for getting culturally appropriate marine reserves in place. Uh, in these countries, which which has all the benefits that we've just been talking about in terms of fisheries and eco tourism resources, um, and and just the plain aesthetics of the place. I mean, it's it's one of the most incredibly beautiful parts of the world, and and for no other reason than that, uh, it should be on everyone's agenda to make sure it's it's protected.
3: And uh, to be honest, the the knock-on global effect as well. You know, we talked with you before of the huge importance of coral reefs. And, you know, in, in, in being our, our lungs for the world as well. And, um, you know, it, it benefits us all as well as this particular area. Um, I, I believe as well you're, you're looking at um, stretching. I mean, your, your focus initially was Sea Women of Melanesia. It's fantastic, even since we last talked to you, how much more this has grown um and going looking forward into into the future you'd like to extend this i presume a little bit further past even melanesia am i right
1: yeah that's right we'll certainly certainly extending it further through melanesia um i mean we've been active on the great barrier reef as well mm-hmm. over the last couple of months but um we, I've got a long-standing connection with the Solomon Islands. I lived in the Solomon Islands for three months in 2013 and um, you know, have a great love for the people and the islands and the reefs of, of the Solomons. So we're, we're working together with our partners at uh, Dive Munda uh, in, the, in the western province of the Solomons, and we're looking at delivering, uh, again, another training program for their people and especially the women advocates from their villages over there, um, that are linked to the very, very high-quality dive sites that uh, Dive Munda and their partners at Solomon Dive Expeditions are able to access. So, um, again, it's, uh, it's a slightly different thing to what we're doing at the Conflicts, but the overall the overall thrust of it is the same, which is to, to help support the communities in their efforts to preserve some of these really, really high conservation value, high ecotourism value reef sites and give them the, the tools that they need to to do that conservation properly and also to to more broadly raise awareness of what we're doing so I mean it's fantastic to be able to partner with a dive operator like Dive Munda because they have the accommodation there they've got the boats there um, and there's opportunities for our supporters and just anyone that's interested really to come and join us there for the two weeks while the program is on so they can they can look at the training program they can see what we're teaching the women and if they can be doing two dives a day on some of the best coral reefs in the world and and there's no substitute for actually seeing these reefs with your own eyes and uh, I mean that's always been one of the things that's kept me in ecotourism for, for the last 20 years is you know the best thing I can do for someone to give them an appreciation of the importance of a coral reef is to put a mask on their face and drop them in on some of the best reef in the world and then the reef does the talking I don't need to do anything after that so finding those ways to, to continue to get people into those areas as well as doing this training is is what's very important so that gets us going in the solomons we're also uh looking to re-engage with some of the local conservation organizations and the people up uh, on bougainville which is which is um the the, the northernmost island in the Solomon the solomon chain and uh it's a place i've been lucky enough to be to go to a couple of times and it's got some fantastic reefs and ecotourism potential um we're also looking at uh you know reigniting and extending our program up into the northern part of the bismarck sea around manis uh, island and the islands to the east of manis which again have some very very high quality uh coral reefs and and the people there are all ready making the initial steps towards um you know marine protected areas and conservation programs so can I um, just it,
3: ask yep. about um, just of the Solomon Islands? Because I know um, earlier this year they had the um, e- awful experience of an oil spill. Has that has it, that? I haven't seen any updates, to be honest, in general media about that. Um, has that affected? Has um, that continuing to affect them, or was that actually just located to a small spot and, fortunately, didn't affect most of the islands?
1: Yeah, the latter. Um, it was out on um, Rennell Island, which is a which is a small uh, island, uh, quite a long way from the rest of the Solomon chain. It's actually out towards the Coral Sea, sort of closer to Australia from uh, from the main island of Guadalcanal, but it's several hundred kilometres further out. So, uh, yeah, look, I I believe that vessel's sitting there. I don't I don't know that anyone's been able to do a salvage yet. So. I, um, certainly, it, I imagine there's going to be ongoing damage to those reefs in that area. Um, but I mean, you know, the Solomon chain is is over a thousand kilometres long, and um, you know, thankfully most of that damage is just being is being contained by the sheer distance that those reefs are away from the rest mm. of the island. So um, from that point of view, it's it's somewhat it's somewhat lucky the oil and whatever that's coming out of the ship is is probably fairly quickly being diluted by the massive. Uh, volume of the of the Pacific
0: So do you get much um, uh, Assistance from the governments of these various areas?
1: Um, we to be honest not a lot but to also be fair the governments in places like PNG and the Solomons are you know I mean they're struggling They're yeah. they're, they're countries that don't have um they don't have uh, the first world economies that we do. Um, just getting the basic services out to all their people is a is a huge ask. Um, so we we are doing our best to engage with the governments in in those areas. So we're developing formal links with the Conservation and Environmental Protection Authority of Papua New Guinea, and um, we have some of their representatives coming to join us on this next training program. So those sort of those sort of links are, are very important. So that the those organisations um, can get the support from our teams of scientists, and uh, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of quite big grants that uh, we can start applying for as soon as we have these formal relationships between our foundation and and governments of, of some of these countries. I mean, there's you know there's grants in the order of a hundred or two hundred thousand euro, which which if well spent can really kickstart um, a lot of these village level. Uh, marine conservation programs through this area, so they're they're all the things we're working towards. Dave, you know it's a it's a multifaceted uh, job mm. running uh, a not for profit organisation like this. There's lots of different balls in the air that we're juggling uh, all the time, but um, the whole thing the whole thing just continues to slowly grow. The more people that hear about it, um, the more people are inclined to support it. The more support we're getting from all sorts of different areas, yes, and. Was- um, yeah it's snowballing and we and we're getting results which is which is the main thing that people want to see i mean i think there's there's so much talk about saving the ocean at the moment and all the different things that that people are doing and it's it's important to not lose sight particularly for coral reefs to not lose sight of the of the two very clear major things that we need to be doing to saving coral reefs the first thing is we need more marine protected areas in place and the second thing is we have to keep pushing to get our carbon emissions down. I mean, the, mm. the biggest threat that these reefs are facing now is the increase in global temperatures and the the changing uh, ocean chemistry due to increasing amounts of CO2 being dissolved in the ocean. I mean, those those two factors alone um, have, have the ability to pose a very serious threat to coral reefs in the next 100 years. So... That's that's our sort of our main two messages that we're that we're pushing, and um, what we can do something about is the marine reserves, and that's what we're we're trying to leverage our skill set to do, um, and as much as we can, we're being proactive and positive and, and advocating for a transition to renewable energy, and um, and particularly in terms of renewable energy for vessels. I mean that's that's really the other major pathway that we're trying to go down is is to say look. It's essential to have vessels to get to these areas, to do the science, to do the ecotourism, to deliver the aid, whatever you want to do out in these long island chains of the Pacific, you need to do it on a vessel. Uh, And you need to, if we can, do it using as much renewable energy as possible. And the incredible thing that we've got in our favour in this area that we're working is a very consistent wind resource for eight or nine months of the year, which has been used for thousands of years by these seafaring people to travel around. Um, And the second thing that's there is is a huge coconut oil biofuel resource, Um, thanks to a lot of the plantations that were planted immediately after the Second World War by the the German and the English administrators in these areas. Uh, Copra was, was thought to be the crop of choice for Melanesia, and so huge areas were planted out under coconut. There's now this incredible biofuel resource out there, so it means all these threads come together in this area: incredible coral reefs, uh, an incredible ecotourism resource, abundant renewable energy resources. Uh, you know, it's the logical place to, for you know, to be a test bed for the development of really innovative um, sailing vessel technologies that can that can get around and deliver people and aid and science to all these areas and and do it without burning a whole lot of fossil fuels, which is uh, which is you know one of our real Uh, Platforms that we want to be pushing forward.
3: Well, and also, I have to say, I I believe a lot of the technology and innovation is already there. You know, we had a lovely chat last week with Isabel, who's the second captain for Race for Water. And I don't know if Mm -hmm. you've seen their catamaran, but, you know, it's basically covered with solar panels. They've got essentially a kite that, you know, pulls them along a lot of the time. And then they have hydrogen fuel batteries as as backup um, yep. and they're doing a tour of the world you know over 5 years with a but i mean they're showing that you can you, we now have the technology and the innovation to be able to go anywhere you want without using any fossil fuels
1: oh absolutely and and you only have to look at the at the advances that are being made in in multi-hole sailing um, capability these days. I mean, every few years, the speed of the giant trimarans and catamarans that are doing these circumnavigations uh, increases. And, and, you know, that's fantastic at the moment, all the technology has been putting into going faster and lighter with these big boats, but there's going to be incredible uh, spin-offs for just the simple, the simple act of moving around these areas. I mean, at the end of the day, the biggest energy burn on any vessel is the, the power needed to move it from place to place. Um, and if you can use the wind, um, as we have been for hundreds of years, but we can we can apply new technologies, new materials, um, new designs in terms of uh, you know vessels and their performance, it's it's possible to to move around these areas you know at, at really sub- substantially economic speeds, 15, 18 knots, uh, almost wind speed, um, with these big catamarans now. So. Um, that's the you know that's our that's where we'd like to see it going is is taking some of those technological advancements that have been used on the on the racing cats and going, okay, well let's let's bring that to uh, a vessel that's designed to have another set of roles which includes science, uh, ecotourism, um, delivery of humanitarian aid uh, and and simply getting out here and and fostering marine conservation in these areas. so yeah, it's, it's very exciting times and it, we feel really lucky to be living uh, in this part of the world where we do with all of this on our, the street and the coral steeds at the end of the street. There's a beautiful 20 knot trade wind blowing at the moment, um, you know. You pump up a kite and ride for an hour totally on wind power and makes you realise if with the appropriate vessel you could cross from the Great Barrier Reef to Melanesia in about three days and you wouldn't use a drop of fuel. So all of that um, is there waiting for us to look at.
0: And this is one of the projects of the Coral Reef Foundation, isn't it? To uh, build a, a purpose-built catamaran uh, to deliver science and ecotourism uh, in the area.
1: That's fine. We've got a we've got a we've got a multi-step uh, a multi-step plan, a multi-step strategic plan for bringing that vessel into operation. So mm-hmm. we're looking initially to put a a modern composite uh, sailing vessel on the water, probably in the the 45 to 50 foot range. We're looking to to um, 45 to 50 a meter or 50 foot? To that. No, just go to 40 or 50 foot and that okay. would be, that, would, that vessel would serve as the reconnaissance vessel. You know, that, that's something that there, there are already uh, pre-existing vessels of the right design on the market at the moment that with minimal, minimal refit could be pressed into service within a month or two and could be out there, uh, you know, and could carry six to eight people, a dive compressor, tanks, they could be delivering our people um to these very remote islands that then that vessel or vessels like it would then form the stepping stone to a bigger investment in a in a 40 or 50 meter um full-on renewable energy powered expedition vessel and science vessel uh, which would be suited to this area so yeah that's a design we spent we spent quite some time working with one two three naval architects in sydney oh, the white um, rabbit on people. that on that the, yeah, exactly. The people that uh, worked with Mark Stothard and, yeah. and Echo Yachts on White Rabbit. So they've got um, arguably the biggest portfolio of multi-hole experience, uh, certainly in this part of the world. So they were a great team to work with. We, we came up with a 42-meter uh, catamaran platform out of that design consultancy. So um, so that vessel's there, and that's been fairly thoroughly, uh, fairly thoroughly designed. In terms of, it wouldn't take much more to do the final round of design plans and bring that boat into into build, um, which we, we you know we thought was an important point to get it to, so that we're not just not just modelling a, a you know a sexy looking boat. We're modelling a boat that's actually been properly thought out. Mm-hmm. The fuel economy's been thought out. The tender system's been thought out. The accommodation uh, for staff and crew has been thought out. Um, you know the the appropriate calculations on. Um, sailing speeds and potential itineraries and all that stuff has, has been properly done, so that if we if we put it in front of people, we can we can okay. confidently say, look, this is something we can we can bring into operation and, and be certain that it's going to be an absolute winner.
0: I, I had a look at the concept video, and I have to say that's one thing that's t- that that jumped out at me was the design consideration for where the tenders go. They just here drive into each side of the, the hulls. I thought that was a beautiful touch. I haven't seen that well, before. look,
1: I mean, my experience, my sort of decade-long experience in expedition um, vessel operations and cruising all through this area mm-hmm. uh, gave us some really key insights into the importance of the tenders. and I mean mm-hmm. at the end of the day, the large vessel is simply the the life support system that gets the tenders and the people. Uh, to the areas that they need to operate. But all the action happens from the tenders. That's where the diving happens. That's where the the close-up exploration happens. That's where the poking in and around of coral reefs and rivers and, and all of that sort of thing happens. So the design of the tenders is crucially important. Uh, and because they're going to be docking with the mothership several times a day, the docking system has to be very, very straightforward and it has to be safe and it has to be able to be done in any sort of weather. So uh, a lot of a lot of thought went into that, to that uh, tender docking process, uh, and looks safe to say all the major details of the tender hoists and lifting mechanisms uh, haven't been put on the 3D model, um, you know, simply because they 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 do have some some fairly cleverly thought out engineering that we're just keeping fairly close to our chest until mm-hmm. the time comes to to make it operational, but. Suffice to say that um, yeah, no, there's you could very, very quickly get a team of, of eight divers plus two support staff, um, kitted up onto a tender, dropped into the water, able to operate in any conditions up to twenty-five or thirty knots and then redock with the the mothership and move off, and do it all very, very safely and, and seamlessly and quickly. So, there was a lot of a lot of thought went into that process.
3: Um, Andy, you mentioned and we've talked before about this um, particular, the the difference this would make, not just for the area, but also as an amazing um, uh, opportunity for yachts to come as it has some of the most amazing diving. Um, Just to broaden that idea of looking at ecotourism, just for Mm. our listeners who are not necessarily uh, owners, but are more, you know, regular people. And this is something they would love to get involved in, is there some way that, you know, not necessarily a big company that would be able to bring in sponsorship, but an ordinary person could get involved? Individuals. Say, individuals. Say they, they're they like, you know, next year is my my 40th and I really want to do something unique. I'd love to do an adventure holiday, but actually I'd like to do an adventure holiday that would make a difference to the world. For that kind of person, is there some way that they could get involved Um with you
1: yeah look we're increasing we're increasingly moving to towards that model um our upcoming expedition to the conflict islands we we do have the opportunity for um guests and 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 you know eco adventure tourists for one of a better world to join us in those locations and obviously if we can partner with um places that have an existing dive operation so like dive Wonder in the solomons like walindi uh, it Kimbe, um, and you know if we can partner with those sort of operations then people can get the best of both worlds they could come and see the world class diving but they can also you know take part in, in our training programs uh, just you know just simply the, simply the fact of someone from a foreign country coming into Melanesia and, and being present as, as the local people are going through these training programs I mean that's incredibly important and in, in, incredibly prestigious for them so the you know the visiting person or the adventure tourist uh, wouldn't even need to necessarily do anything but just simply their presence of being there and offering their support and encouragement for the local people going through the training is, is incredibly important so yeah look we, we as I said I mean my, my feeling is that ecotourism and this conservation need to go hand in hand they both work together to raise awareness of these areas and we're certainly doing everything that we can to try and make sure that people have the opportunity to come and see these reefs wherever that may be, be it the Great Barrier Reef, be it Lizard Island, be it the Coral Sea uh, or Papua New Guinea or the Solomons or, um, you know, places further afield. It's, it's important that those opportunities are there for people. So um, it's hard to put a finger on any one particular spot or place, but certainly if people are interested in, in visiting that area and having an experience down here, then they should certainly uh, get in touch with us just uh, via our website coralseafoundation.net and we can certainly provide some more information um, the more people that come and see it as far as I'm concerned the better
3: mm-hmm. well it's one of the things you know I've seen more and more of of um, both from the higher end and the lower end of of this next generation coming in they're not looking for a holiday they're looking for an experience now for some that's going to yep. be you know still kind of diving or whatever but for some they really want to be involved with something that makes the difference, and you know, even in the super yacht industry, there's more and more of uh, super yachts getting involved in in research in a small way. It's still a, a very small part of it, but it's good to see it growing and at least being present. Um, so that's why I was oh, sort
1: of absolutely. Yeah, look, I mean, at the at the end of the day, access to these areas. Uh, is, is crucial and you need a vessel to do that. And you know, let's, let's not sugarcoat it. You have to be on a vessel to do it. The vessel needs to be well found. It needs to be able to comfortably have people staying on it. Uh, it needs to um, be economical. It needs to be able to operate in all the different sea states that, uh, that come across. So, uh, I mean, super yachts by their very design, uh, by and large, especially the newer iterations of them that are being built with an expedition capability, mm-hmm. You know they're very well suited to to operating in these sorts of areas so um and you know we we have already seen most of the boats that are coming into melanesia now um and a lot of them are coming in through um melanesian yacht services which is which is run by mm-hmm. our friend and partner angela Pennefather. Mm-hmm. um you know and and those those yachts are are bringing in aid. They're they're positively engaging with the the communities and the villages that they go to, and the the owners and the guests on board are getting that that experience of not just visiting the place, but actually seeing the people and being able to to leave something of value behind that actually improves the lives of the of the people that they've come to visit.
3: Just uh, for any potential critics out there, is there any potential that Superyachts coming in would be bringing, um, because not all of them are going to be, you know, electric hybrids or whatever, would be bringing in pollution to this area, which has been somewhat untouched. Is there a, a negative connotation, or really on volume, it's so small that uh, the positive impact will far outweigh any potential negative or impact. Or illnesses as well.
1: <laughs> oh, look. I mean, I would, I would think that most, um, most modern. Vessels are being built with the appropriate uh, sewage processing plant on board and rubbish handling plant on board. Um, you know, the days of those things just being flung over the side is is long gone. Um, you know, it's probably more likely that that sort of pollution is going to be coming from badly maintained coastal trading vessels in these countries themselves than than the super yachts coming in. Um, so. You know, there's always, there's the fuel burn, yes, but virtually every um, combustion engine-powered vessel that's operating in those areas uh, has that going on. Uh, but, no, look, I think in terms of the bigger picture, the any um, environmental pollution that's caused by a super yacht going through is, is relatively minimal or it's not, it's not in any way greater than uh, any other sort of conventional vessel operating in that area. Certainly, you know, as I said, if we can start to move towards um, wind and biofuel powered vessels in these areas, then that substantially cuts down the fuel burn, which at the moment is, is probably the biggest environmental footprint of these vessels in the area, providing that their, their wastewater treatment um, uh, protocols are intact and that their rubbish handling protocols are intact.
0: I think that the newer generations of both seem to be a lot more um, focused on renewable energy and you know, over the next few, few years we should see more of those and hopefully less combustion is being built.
3: Yeah, no, there's a uh, there's a huge change right at the boat-building level, you know, that we've seen, particularly in the past two years, of what they're bringing in <coughs> and how they're implementing it, right down to tenders, you know. I saw a, a super eco-tender, which was, you electric know... Electric tenders. Electric tender that was, you know, inside of it was 80% recycled plastic, a lot of which had come from ocean plastics. It was... um Electric and it was made of sea aluminium. I'm not quite sure what that yeah. is, what's but C-aluminium? you know, it was just. I love seeing these new innovations coming out at such a greater speed right now, because um, at least it shows the progress we are making. Um, well,
0: what's the plastic problem in these areas? Because um, we you know, we see so much of garbage patch in in Pacific and high concentrations in. Yeah. In around the, the coral sea is is plastic a huge problem
1: oh look not compared to um indonesia for example i mean if i think of all the places i've traveled in my time at sea where i've seen um plastic pollution um you know indonesia's many many times worse than anything i've seen in papua new guinea or the solomons but i mean having said that yeah, there's definitely pollution in and near the bigger towns, Port um, Moresby, Honiara, those places. Uh, you know, there's often not, there's just not a rubbish collection service, so people yeah. are either burning their rubbish or throwing it into the sea as they ever used to. It's just, you know, in the past they used to be throwing coconut leaves and banana leaves and other biodegradable things into the sea. Um, now it's increasingly, you know, metals and, and plastics. but it's um look i mean the microplastics and other things uh there are a problem everywhere i mean you can go to any isolated beach now in the coral sea or or around png and if it's facing the wind um then you know there'll be old thongs and bits of plastic whatnot washed up on the beach but i would imagine compared to say some of the bigger places in southeast asia or even um you know places in europe yeah it's the, the waters once you're away from a population center the water's still pretty clear i mean i I, um, you know, it's not like you're swimming along, and seeing straws or plastic bags or anything like that. I mean, it's, um, it's not as it's not uh super at a super super critical point yet, thankfully.
3: Well, that's uh, grace indeed. <laughs> as it, um, yeah. I mean, it but unfortunately it's, it's it touches everywhere. Yeah. You know, we're all connected by the water. So, um, however, uh, there is enough to deal with without having that as being a major issue.
1: Yeah, no, look, I mean it's it's plastic's an important issue, but I think it's it's important to to not lose sight of the, the bigger picture of what's happening to the forest from looking at the trees. I mean the, the, the big issue that we're facing with the ocean um, is uh, is the climate disruption issue. I mean that I mean plastics plastic is, is no doubt it's damaging, no doubt it, it blocks up the the, re, the digestive systems of various organisms, but at the end of the day, it's in a, it's an inert material. It's not poisonous. Mm. It's not going to raise the sea level by 10 metres. Mm. It's not going to make coral reefs bleach. It's not going to stop calcifying organisms from being able to lay down a skeleton or a shell. I mean, all of those things are, are in the pipeline in terms of climate disruption within the next 100 years if we don't take action on emissions. So, uh, yes, we need to fix the plastic problem, but let's not turn our back on the emissions problem, stabilising the climate problem, fixing up the marine reserves problem. Because you know, without action on those other two things, uh, you know, we can clean the ocean of plastic, and if it's two degrees warmer than it is now, it's not going to be a good. It's not going to be a good scene. So we need to be fixing all these simultaneously.
0: Uh, about a month ago, um, the international. I can't remember what they are called, IPPY or something. International group of, of countries came out and said yes. that within 15 years, if we don't you know, have a massive change in, in how we're doing things, it's game over. Um, then we we hear you know other people going oh by 2050 we're going to get rid of straws. Uh, you've just said there you know within a hundred years. A couple of weeks ago there was a revised estimate by this international group uh, who were looking at pollution. And they said, actually, if within 18 months we don't have a significant change, well, forget about it. There's nothing, you know, we've passed the point of no return. What's your view on yeah, that? Yeah, I
1: indeed? mean, it's... Oh, look, I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's a hard one because you don't... It's Anytime you're forecasting the future, there's always going to be the likelihood that... There's going to be a a, a a measure of error in trying to forecast what's going on, but I mean, as scientists, we need to we need to analyze what's going on, particularly when there's a, a changing trend. And we need to be able to say, okay, well, look, we've seen certain amount of changes up until now with X amount of input of carbon dioxide, say, or ocean warming, or plastic, or whatever. Uh, based on the current trajectory and where we're going, this is what we think. The likely the likely impacts could be, I mean, I think it's a mistake to to point to say, look at, at X point, it's a point of no return. Um, the reality is that significant changes in our in our biosphere, in our atmosphere, and our ocean are are absolutely locked in now. we, we I mean we're seeing that you guys are seeing yeah. that now this summer. I mean, Climate change is not something that's coming in the future. You're getting 40 degree temperatures in Europe. I mean, and there's an unprecedented ice melt event going on in Greenland at the moment. I mean, you know, we're seeing things happening. now. It actually is green now. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, but we're seeing things happening now that 10 or 15 years ago, the climate models were predicting were going to happen by about 2040 or 2050. I mean, we're seeing some of those things starting to happen now already. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think it's a mistake to put a, to put a finite date on it. The, the point is we need to take action, and the longer that we wait to take that action, the bigger the, the problem of remediation and stabilisation is going to be. I mean, and, you know, and this is, I think, I think, unfortunately, it's been cast as a, as a debate between, um, you know, the free market economy and capitalism on one hand. And you know, a uh, some sort of socialism, green socialism, and a dismantling of free mm-hmm. enterprise on the other on the other side, which, which is a, which is a shame because you know the bigger picture issue is how do we get through the next couple of hundred years? What you know, this is this this the meaning of the term sustainability. Um, you know, if we can very clearly look at our resource base and say, okay, for example, we're we're using up the fishery resources of our ocean faster than they're being replenished you know, how does that play out in 50 or, or 100 years? You know, if we can see that the ocean is warming at a degree per century and we know that that rise is starting to increasingly make coral reefs bleach and we're losing our corals and therefore the fisheries that depend on them and then the livelihoods of the people that depend on those fisheries, if we can see that those things are happening, then, it you know, it behoves us to take action. If it's bad at one degree, we don't want it to get to two or three. So it's about taking this longer-term pragmatic view and going, um, okay, what, what are the things we need to be doing now to, to mitigate these changes and for those changes that are now unavoidable, so for example, the sea level rise that's locked in from the, the melt of the Antarctic glaciers and the Greenland glaciers, I mean, that's locked in now. We're, you know, there's metres of sea level rise mm-hmm. coming over the next century or two that we can't avoid so, okay, what do we need to start to do for that? Which which cities are going to go underwater? Which bits of infrastructure do we need to move? Which island nations do we need to think about supporting? Because basically, 80% of their of their landmass is going to be gone. You know, those are the sort of the longer term, strategic things that that we need to be thinking about. And you know, it's starting to happen, but there's still there's still a lot of people missing this bigger picture because they're caught in this in this fine scale argument between you know. Is it the the IPCC, the corrupt IPCC coming to dismantle um, capitalism and, you know, the ability of of people all around the world to work and and make money? Um, You know, I think that's a really short-sighted way to look at it. We need to be taking a step back and going, okay, how are we going to manage 9 billion people on this planet by 2050? How are we going to feed them? How are we going to get energy? Where's that energy going to come from? How how are these people going to spend their leisure time? All these big, big questions are are things that need to be on the table. Um,
3: And also, not to lose sight of the things that are happening. Do you know the African Green Belt just last week, 350 million trees were planted um, in in 24 hours. You know, China has, um, although it's demonized in many ways, has been one of the biggest um, re-greening their area in Europe. We've we've um, reforestation reforestation that's <laughs> re-greening <laughs> re-greening <laughs> um, You know, in 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 the UK, they've increased their their um, marine reserve areas. They're reforesting a whole swath of areas. France, all through Europe. So. And, and Morocco now has a goal of having 40% by 2020, 40% of their energy coming from solar panels and renewables. So I think we need to also balance what is being done as well. There is huge movement in many places in the world. Um, Africa as well has has really come on with renewable energy. Um, and I, I think sometimes in the debate, it's important to look at the reality, but also important to look at the positives that are happening too.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, that's a that's a, uh, a message that we're trying to get across in Australia, um, particularly all the time. I mean, the, the Australia is awash with renewable energy. The cheapest way to generate electricity in Australia right now is with renewable energy. I mean, we had a situation last week where, um, you know, the renewable, en- the renewable energy uh, infrastructure was providing so much power into our grid that the spot price of electricity on the whole electricity market dropped to zero zero cents i mean essentially the electricity was free along the whole of the east coast for several hours and that's with that's with just the renewable energy penetration that we've got here at the moment um so yeah look getting getting behind those those things are absolutely are absolutely crucial um but it's important to to recognize the speed with which things have to happen um, you know, slowly, slowly, isn't going to get us there. I mean, we need to be we need to be making radical changes. We need to be making big changes, um, or else, or else we just simply run into the the hard ecological realities of our food supply, our fresh water supply. Um, I mean, you know, these are the these are the critical things that humans need for survival. We can't escape those things. We can't, uh, you know, technologically innovate our way out of no water. I mean, you know, you've, mm. there's there's three or four massive cities in India at the moment, Chennai being one of them, and several others that are basically now they're mm. out of water. No Their water. groundwater resource is gone. Mm-hmm. The monsoon hasn't come. You know, you've got millions and millions of people now relying on a water truck bringing them in water every day. I mean, this you know these sorts of things are going to be. Become the new reality in and many places if we if we don't start to think strategically about how it's
3: things. not limited to India. Do you know? I read a recent report of ten different cities in the U.S. that within ten years are facing huge water shortages unless well, already they already
0: already in California they have big problems. I mean
3: they already have major some major issues in in different places. But it's not just a third world problem. Yeah. Do you know? The U.S. in particular no. are facing yeah. the exact same issues and and all along the Florida coast. They're looking at needing to invest as much into seawalls to protect the rising tide as they've put into their entire infrastructure of roads throughout the states. It's
0: also bees; they're running out of bees in America. Yeah. So, um,
1: you know, yeah. so I mean, all, all of these things, all of these things, I believe, um, can be can be acted on, can be addressed, and in the long term are probably solvable. But they require us to to. To get off our butts and get innovative and start thinking in new ways and doing new things. We're, we're not going. These problems aren't going to go away, and mm-hmm. we're not going to solve them by just going. Oh, it's all fine, you know. It's just let's just keep on going like we have been. We don't need to worry, um, you know. You hear this stuff all the time. Carbon dioxide's good for trees, and there, <laughs> there used to be more of it when dinosaurs were running around, and you know the, it won't matter if the earth's a couple of degrees hotter or. Um, you know, don't worry about what's going on in the ocean. I mean, it's 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 silly to to just put the blinkers on and go. Let's not worry. I mean, I can see why people do it psychologically. Mm. Yeah, you, people want people want things to say stay the same old way that they have been, particularly if they're in the you know in the latter um, third of their life. And you know, they they're adverse to making large changes. But nevertheless, as a society, we need to be thinking about um you know the innovative and the radical action that we need to be making and and like you say there's lots of there's lots of fantastic stuff happening i mean the the transition in energy at the moment is is amazing it's the it's the horse to motor car movement
3: Mm -hmm. you know
1: being played out again years later
3: hydrogen power in particular you know coming up in so many new ways um that
1: vessels to electricity to transport to cars to you know you name it there's there's all of that stuff and the companies i've always maintained that the companies and the individuals and the nations that get behind that transition will be the ones that that reap the benefit and position themselves well over the next Maybe few decades works. and uh, yeah that's
0: unfortunately and we, we've uh, kind of well we've not just run out of time we've gone way over our time um, but it's always difficult to news.
3: finish off with you actually <laughs> we, we could
0: i could keep going first naomi is she still there
1: She's still here. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, she's listening intently.
0: <laughs> um, I can thank you enough for your time. As we've well. we got to do it sooner than later, Andy. <laughs> it's been way too long.
1: Thank yeah, thank you, Dave and Maeve. It's been great to chat again. It's and um, thanks to the listeners. Um, check us out on our social media feeds. Um, stay in touch with what's going on. There's going to be some incredible imagery and stories coming out of our next expedition to Papua New Guinea. Um, so keep keep your eye on that and, um, I, I yeah, have... come down and chat.
3: I have to say, I, I follow you as you know on on Facebook and Instagram. Instagram, in particular, there are hey, sometimes who takes your you pictures? put Auntie does you take those pictures. There are just some of the most beautiful yeah. images um, that you actually, you know, I've I, I've kind of magnified them. Going isn't, I mean, if you just want to see how incredible nature is, um, if yeah. you need to check out. Uh, Curl Sea Foundation, Instagram, um, and Facebook as well, but Instagram because it's particularly visual. Um, you've...
1: Yeah, no, and it is, a visual, it is a very visual environment that we're working mm. in, so conveying, conveying that story with the imagery is really important. I mean, we just had a fantastic event in Perth uh, at the Oceans Institute of University of Western Australia where I had five or six uh, underwater photography pieces along one wall and my good friend and landscape artist, Larry Mitchell, had a series of his beautiful three-meter-wide um, landscape uh, oil-painting panoramas from uh, Melanesia along the other wall. And, you know, we were talking about what we're doing with the foundation, and Naomi talked about the Sea Women. But it was a it was a really good, complete package. There was a visual aspect. There was an artistic aspect. There was, a um, you know, the Queen of Melanesia spoke. And, <laughs>
3: wow. and everyone really loved it. <laughs>
1: We need to take the Coral Sea Foundation Roadshow on the road. So if you'd like this in your town, send us a message.
3: <laughs> well, thank you. And thank you, Naomi, for joining us as well. Um, it is lovely to meet Alderley, anyway, one of the, uh, the great women who have been… Of Melanesia. Um, of Melanesia, indeed. <laughs> Since we have heard so much about this and have been following you, it's lovely to meet you as well. So thank you for joining oh, us this morning. You.
0: <laughs> uh, thank you both. That was uh, Naomi from the Women of Melanesia, and sea women. Uh, sorry, sea women, Melanesia. sea women of Melanesia, and uh, Dr. Annie Lewis of the Coral Sea Foundation. Um, thank you both for your time. We really appreciate it. You're Thank you. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure. We'll see you very soon. I hope again. Uh, you're listening to the Overboard
3: Show. We're going to get some music, and then we'll be back shortly after that.